Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 546 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. So Bernie Sanders today introduced a resolution in the United States Senate that uh, says that, uh, first of all, the Senate formally agrees with the intelligence community's assessment that uh, Russia interfered in American and foreign elections, and that the Senate would also resolve to, quote, move aggressively to protect our election systems from interference by Russia or any foreign power, and that this must be, quote, fully implemented by the president, end of quote. Rand Paul objects, saying, this is crazy hatred of the president. This is crazy partisanship driving this. So, you know, let me get this straight. Bernie says, let's, let's, you know, secure our election systems. Rand Paul says that's crazy partisanship. Over in the House of Representatives, they're trying to pass uh, legislation to fund these grants that through 2019, pass legislation to fund these grants that would help the states secure their election systems. This is from today's Washington Post. The headline, it's by Erica Werner. 
The headline, House GOP refuses to renew election security funding as Democrats fume over Russian interference. Kind of tells the whole story, right? House Republicans plan to vote Thursday on a spending bill that excludes new money for election security grants to the states. Democrats want to continue grant funding through 2019. Well, that's pretty strange, but then, then the, the level of strange amps up considerably. Uh, yesterday, or perhaps it was the day before, uh, Donald Trump, in an interview with CBS News, said he was talking about James Clapper, who was the former head of the CIA, as I recall. He might have also been DNI, but, I'm, but you know, he was the head of the CIA. He says, you know, Clapper wrote me a beautiful letter when I first went to office, and it was really nice. And then all of a sudden, he's gone high, haywire. This is Donald Trump speaking. All of a sudden, he's gone haywire because they got to him. And they probably got him to say things that maybe he doesn't even mean. End of quote from Donald Trump. So who is they? Well, Michael Scheuer over at non-intervention.com, his blog, and, and you know Michael Scheuer has been a guest on this program a number of times. Back during the Bush years, he wrote books about, he's a former CIA guy, and he wrote books about uh, Osama bin Laden and how uh, when he was on our program, as I recall, it was you know his concerns that the Bush administration was overreaching in their reaction to 9-11 and and basically diminishing the the rights of Americans. A position, by the way, with which I largely agreed, which is why he was on the program. So I haven't talked to Michael in, geez, I don't know how long. Six, eight years, ten years, something like that. But his blog today is uh, interesting and troubling and may help us answer that question. Who is this they that Donald Trump is talking about? Because I think that Michael is is reflecting, I mean, in this one blog is distilled a lot of the stuff that you will find at Breitbart and, and on uh, Fox so-called news and on right-wing hate radio and over at Alex Jones's uh, Infowars site and whatnot. So Michael Schreier writes, at this, as, this week's, uh, as this week's end, I think he means at this week's end, uh, this is from June, uh, July 14th, so this is like from five days ago. It seems likely that it is quite near time for killing those involved in the multiple and clearly delineated attempts to stage a coup d'etat against the legitimately elected Trump government and thereby kill our republic. So his opening sentence is, it's time to start killing people. It's quite near time for killing people. He writes, this week saw the alternative media, I'm assuming that's his phrase for what, we refer to as the mainstream media, the corporate media, document nearly 300 incidents of violence against loyal U.S. citizens that have been perpetrated by Democrats and the domestic terrorists that the party and its financial supporters keep on their payrolls. Are we figuring out who they is yet? The week saw FBI agents struck brazenly lie to Congress, show his own detestation for everyday Americans, it's their smell, he says, and display facial and other physical quirks that appeared very reminiscent of a demented beaver, a drug addict, or a loyal Democrat. So we're filling in the blanks on they. The week saw on Friday the 13th, Special Counsel Mueller and his Democratic apparatchik lawyers indict 12 supposed Russian intelligence officers with a laughable amount of evidence pertaining to their reported involvement in the 2016 election. And he suggests that Mueller is doing this to screw up Trump's opportunity to meet with Putin. He says, finally this week, and he goes, he's, basically he's got this bill of grievance, sort of like the Declaration of Independence did. They did this, and then they did this, and then they did this. He says, finally this week saw a significant and quickening advance toward the moment when those millions. Now, let me just pause this right here. Kristallnacht was over a decade in the making in Germany. The, the hard right in Germany that eventually came to be known as the National Socialist Party had been arguing for some time that there was a they among the German people specifically the Jews. 
and that and Kristallnacht was the night that the 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 the, the volunteers, right, the the, the well armed citizenry of Germany. This was not the government of Germany that did this. This was average Germans went into the streets and smashed the windows of Jewish-owned stores. Back to Michael Scheuer. He said, finally this week I saw a significant and quickening advance toward the moment when those millions of well-armed citizens who voted for Trump and who have been abused or wounded by Democrats, their Antifa thugs, and their thug civil servants for exercising their franchise to elect Trump cannot in good conscience patient for much longer, or be patient for much longer. Fortunately, they have in hand a long and very precise list, they being those well-armed citizens who voted for Trump. Fortunately, they have in hand a long and very precise list of the names and photographs of those who hate and threaten them, their families, their way of life, their liberty, their livelihoods, and their republic. No self-respecting and determined to remain independent citizenry can let themselves forever be held hostage by thug civil servants like Strzok, Comey, McCabe, Page, and Rosenstein. Worshippers of tyranny like the Democratic members of Congress. I have to hand it to Michael. He, he says my, Democratic. He doesn't use the Democrat thing from Joe McCarthy. The Clintons, the FBI, and the Obamas, apparent traitors like Brennan, Hayden, and Clapper, all of the mainstream media and the tens of thousands of government-admitted and protected violent criminal and illegal immigrants. And he wraps up his rant. As I said, you can read this over at non-intervention.com, Michael's blog. And I'm not attacking Michael. I'm pointing out here that this is the thinking that is going on that I think is leading to Trump saying they got to Clapper. He said, American patriots, patriots have so far, praise God, been remarkably disciplined in not responding to tyranny and violence with violence. For now, they must remain so, armed but steady. But the time for such patience is fast slipping away. Indeed, that patience is quickly becoming an obviously rank and self-destructive foolishness. If Trump does not act soon to erase the above-noted tyranny and tyrants... The armed citizenry must step in and eliminate them. It is, of course, far better if Trump does so, and I pray and believe he will, Michael writes. That said, the sheer, nay, utter joy and satisfaction to be derived from beholding great piles of dead U.S. citizen tyrants is not one that will be missed if Trump does not soon do the necessary to save the republic. But if he fails, the citizenry must act to ensure that Hillary's predictive words are proven correct if Trump wins, she apparently said, we will all hang. I know of no evidence that Hillary ever said that, which I think is why Michael said it, apparently. And there's some interesting comments to it. But, you know, setting aside, well, I don't, I don't know what you can set aside here, but um, let me make it clear. This, I, you can go on the Internet and you can just, you know, read these sites and what you will discover is that this is not unique to Michael's site. And th these kinds of calls to action, these calls to violence. Who is the they that Donald Trump says got to Clapper? And what, and, and what is this leading us to now? What do we do with this? I'm talking in a practical way as, as you know, people living in a democratic republic uh, Democrats who, whose suggestion is, gee, maybe we should join the other 33 countries in the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD countries. Um, why don't we join the other 33 countries and have a national health care system? Why don't we regulate the banks? Why don't we stop dumping poison into our air and water? And for these calls... These Democrats are called communists and socialists and enemies of the people. To say we should secure our election systems? Rand Paul says that this is hatred of the president? To say we should lock down our election systems? Are, are, is this a case of the ends justify the means? I mean, the, the Republicans seem to like rigged elections, right? Whether they're rigged by the Russians or whether they're rigged by Diebel. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Which is not to say that Diebel is necessarily rigging elections, but they may be 
putting out equipment that makes it relatively easy. Welcome back. So, you know, this uh, Mark Sumner over at the Daily Kos. The headline, Donald Trump won't call Putin a liar, but he has plenty of names for U.S. intelligence officials. And this is, you know, from the CBS anchor Jeff Glor's interview with Donald Trump uh, yesterday or the day before. Uh, Wednesday evening, yesterday, last night. Glor, he's talking about Putin. He says, but he denies it. So if you believe U.S. intelligence agencies, is Putin lying to you? And Trump replies, I don't want to get into whether or not he's lying. I can only say I do have confidence in our intelligence agencies as currently constituted. Now, as currently constituted presumably means that he's gotten rid of those people that Michael was just pointing out. The, you know, John Brennan and Andrew McCabe and Jim Comey and James Clapper and Michael Hayden and, of course, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. And then we go to Trump. He continues. He says, you know, Clapper wrote me a beautiful letter when I first went to office. It was really nice. And then all of a sudden he's gone haywire because they got to him and they probably got him to say things that maybe he didn't even mean. They. They being the liberals? I don't think that this is about, you know, uh, democratic plans for a national health care system. Although maybe it is. I mean, you know, there are, there are right-wing billionaires who believe that that is the first step to fascism, to communism, excuse me, to, you know, the, the worst isms. You have the state of Georgia right now, which has totally insecure election systems, no paper trail, no, they're unauditable. They're all entirely touchscreen, the entire state. And the state is, is resisting a lawsuit by Democrats to simply demonstrate that their system is secure and to take federal money to secure the system. And the, and the, and the, peop, the Republicans who run Georgia are saying, hey, this system is just fine with us. It keeps electing Republicans. I mean, what do you do when you've got a political party that seems to be the recipient, the beneficiary of this kind of stuff, and they go, oh, hey, it's just fine with us. It's this, not a big deal. We're not concerned about election security. We keep winning the elections. You know, in those states where you've got good election security, like Oregon and, and Washington State, where it's entirely mail-in, every single ballot is a paper ballot. You, it, you learn that you're not on the voting rolls when your ballot doesn't arrive in the mail, which gives you plenty of time to call them up and say, hey, what the heck happened? Did I get purged? And when your ballot doesn't re arrive in the mail, then, then, then you know, right? And you still have weeks to get one and send it in here in Oregon and in Washington State. And, you know, they look at that and they go, yeah, Democrats keep winning in Washington and Oregon State, or uh, Washington State and Oregon. I don't know, this is, this is a conundrum. We'll be back. It's 22 and a half minutes past the hour. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So what's going on here? We've got a political party. You know, down in Georgia, the Democrats are suing the, the Secretary of State and saying you should take the federal money to make the Georgia election system more secure. Because Georgia is one of five states in which there is no paper trail, there are no paper ballots, everything is done on touch screens, and it's just wildly insecure. And there's a pretty good-sized body of evidence to suggest that since 2002-2004, elections have not been turning out in Georgia the way that the exit polls say they should, which is how we measure election fraud in other countries. And Georgia's saying, we don't need the money. Democrat, you know, the, the Republicans today are going to vote on a proposal uh, in the House of Representatives to deny increasing uh, funding for election security to the states. So here you have the Republican Party and, and Rand Paul saying, hey, any attempt to do so is simply proof that you hate the president. So you've got a political party that's apparently more than happy to take, to take help in acquiring power from cranky right-wing billionaires 
There are more than ha uh, American billionaires. They're apparently more than willing to take help from you know, cranky foreign autocrats. In this case, at the very least, Mr. Putin and possibly others. Which, by the way, the Democrats are acknowledging. They're saying, you know, we need to lock down our systems to protect them from Russia and anybody else who wants to hack them. And I'm, you know, I'm assuming that the Russians are saying, hey, we need to lock down our systems to keep the Americans out. I mean, this is just common sense. But you've got a party that's saying, basically, the ends justify the means. The religious right has been, you know, this was their argument for Donald Trump. He may be a bigot, he may be a misanthrope, he may be Messiah, he may hate women, he may, he may grab women by the crotch, he may, he, may, uh, you know, he may sleep with porn stars, he may you know, party with hookers, but he's going to keep our tax-exempt status intact and let us involve ourselves in the political uh, arena so that we can increase our personal power and wealth. This is essentially what the religious right is saying. It's the deal that they've cut. The ends justify the means. And now the Republicans are saying this. And in the, and in the background, we have these voices on the, on the far right, the far right the fringe, I would say, who are saying, is it time to start killing people yet? We'll be delighted to see piles of bodies of these people, these people being Democrats. Really? Is this where we're at as a country? What do we do with this? Your calls after this. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Call 202-808-9925. It's 28 minutes past the hour. We'll be back. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them, you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth. Uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, it's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim. It's lightweight. It's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a, you know, a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, be, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it into travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com slash Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com dot com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks and they send you the refills, the, the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. And uh, the, Michael Arpert's we, uh, website, by the way, or Michael Scheuer's website, excuse me, is uh, non-intervention.com. And uh, so just, just uh, FYI. And Republicans uh, block the effort. This is, this is pretty remarkable. Uh, this morning, the House Intelligence Committee, in the House Intelligence Committee, Adam Schiff and uh, Eric Swalwell, who are the, uh, the, the two most senior Democrats on the committee, uh, moved to uh, request to subpoena the translator that was in the room with uh, Trump and Putin. And every single Republican on the committee voted no. Every single Republican voted no. What is going on here? Mark in Valley, Washington. Hey, Mark, what's on your mind? Yeah, how you doing, Tom? Good. I've had this discussion with you with citizens owning AR-15s before, but what's going on right now? I surmise to you that we best think, rethink that because I'll guarantee a large percentage of the Trump supporters are armed with equivalent-type weapons. And I got a funny feeling that uh, there's going to be clashes in the streets with these people because the Republicans aren't doing anything. Yeah, this is really, really dangerous stuff, Mark. You, you do not, you don't, you, you, the, the goal here is not to start a war. The goal here is to, is to have a functioning republic. And, and, you know, I mean, basically what you're saying is, is uh, uh, you know, is a call to arms. 
and I, you know, I, just, I can't go there. I won't go there. I, you know, it's. It, it, well, they are. I know they are. So you better be prepared. I'm not saying that we got to start it. I'm saying be prepared. I think this is, see, just like Scheuer is saying that he hopes that Trump deals with all these Democrats by presumably, you know, locking them up. He's talking about piles of dead bodies and stuff. I mean, this is kind of the Hitler, right, uh, uh, strategy, whatever. I am hopeful that the, the, the high integrity or the, the portions of our government, which still retain some integrity, uh, you know, which would be the intelligence agencies, the FBI, the police departments and whatnot, um, will protect us because that's their job. That's why we created this government. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get your concern, Mark, but, you know, I, that is not the solution. I'm telling you, that's not the solution. Michael in Imperial, California. Hey, Michael. Hey, Mr. Hartman. Um, that article by Markle Schauer is just terrifying. And I want to point out one hypocrisy of it. Okay, so are the people Michael Schauer is trying to incite actually willing to murder, quote, millions of Americans, as he suggested, even if they are their own mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, and even their own living children? So here's the hypocrisy. See, that's the reminder we need, Michael, is that we're all, right. we're all people here, including, right. including Michael and, and his friends who, who feel so aggrieved by Democrats. Back to you. I agree. But here's the hypocrisy. So these people who say that abortion is wrong, just because their child who is now living believes against Donald Trump, they're willing to murder their own child who's actually living? Yeah. I just find that so hypocritical. It's not even funny. And this well, is scary stuff. Some of them, you know, I mean, they have demonstrated a willingness to use violence. They, you know, Heather, uh, what's her name? Heather Heyer was murdered in Charlottesville. Uh, you know, several abortion doctors have been murdered over the years. I mean, you know, these... Uh, uh, Tim McVeigh, you know, killed hundreds of people in, in uh, Oklahoma City. Um, the, the, uh, it turns out that the, uh, the shooter in Las Vegas uh, was a right-wing conspiracy guy. He, he thought it was time to bring on the revolution. I mean, it's not, he, this, this is not, and, and he killed a whole bunch of people and wounded over 500 of them. Uh, in fact, I think it's in the neighborhood of 1,000 now because the hotel is suing them to try to avoid liability itself. So, you know, it's, it's yeah. Sean in uh, Kennewa, New Jersey. Hey, Sean, what's up? Hi, Tom. You know, um, it, when does it come? It, when does it get to the uh, point where um, you know this type of language and this type of writing uh, goes beyond this argument? Well, free speech. I'm sorry. The First Amendment does not protect somebody uh, 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 inciting a riot in this country, calling for uh, the execution of people that disagree with you in this country, is inciting a riot. And when do we get to the point where these these people who publish these, uh, uh, t you know, this type of writing to be arrested and prosecuted. This is, this is inciting a riot, it's inciting violence, and it's a really sc scary time in our history where, you know, uh, uh, our nation is almost at, at the point of where, you know, we could have a civil war if this kind of stuff is taken seriously. Yeah, and, 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 it, is being, and it is being taken seriously by people. I mean, look at the guy who showed up at the, at the pizza parlor in, in Washington, D.C. with a rifle and started shooting because he thought that Hillary Clinton was running a sex ring out of a basement that didn't, the building didn't even have a basement, by the way. Um, much less Hillary Clinton running a sex ring, you know, child sex ring. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this, this is where, and that, again, was a story that started on, in these same, uh, you know, right-wing fringe areas like, uh, like uh, Alex Jones's site and whatnot. And this is where it ends up. I mean, fortunately, that guy didn't kill anybody. Uh, but, uh, you know, this is, this is scary stuff. Sean, I, you know, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, this is where we need to have strong institutions that have strong, we have to have, you know, essentially these quasi-military institutions, which are the police and the FBI, that have strong civilian oversight, oversight by elected officials. And when the Republicans refuse to uh, even, you know, uh, subpoena the, the, well, I, I, you know, maybe we're conflating issues here. But when the, when the Republicans refuse to uh, have funding to secure elections in the United States, because, gee, that just seems to be working out just fine for us after all, you know? So what if the exit polls in Georgia consistently show Democrats winning, but the election uh, results from the voting machines, which no paper trail and unauditable, always show Republicans, hey, we like that. So what if the, if the Russians hacked an election? We like that. So what if the Chinese helped out? We like that. So what if, you know, fill in the blank, Saudi Arabia, Israel, some other country is, is you know, funneling money into the United States to influence our elections through, through uh, lobbying groups or front groups or whatever it may be. You know, as long as it keeps us in power, it's all good. There is a point at which I think that we all have to realize that the ends justifies the means is not a healthy 
uh, direction to be going. And we'll be, by the way, we'll be talking about that at some length with Jeff Charlotte in the third hour of our program today. Uh, he wrote the book, The Family, and we're going to get back to that in the National Prayer Practice. Uh, Judith in Chandler, Arizona. Hey, Judith, what's on your mind? Hi there, Tom. Uh, my, my thoughts about this, because it all is terrifying, to say the least. Um, and both of them, I'm afraid, one are, are, are pretty grim. Um, a, I don't think these people are going to go away. I don't think, uh, and, well, A, I guess back step, we need to see what happens in the midterms. If the Democrats take the House, then there might be some hope. But these people are not going to go away. They're true believers. And I've long felt that the country needs to split because we've never really been united to begin with. Uh, and, and barring that, uh, you know, since this country, uh, fortunately, uh, for so long, ha has managed to escape the, the mayhem that happened in Europe over hundreds of years, we've never been through that. So we haven't had that experience outside of the Civil uh, War. Yeah. Well, well, yeah. Well, we had the the uh, the, the, the Civil War, uh, which uh, uh, un un unfortunately I think should have ended with our splitting, but but did not. Yeah, that's been that's been Louise's theory all along. Is that Lincoln's biggest mistake was he didn't say, "Okay, see you guys later." Yeah, uh, I, I I think the Democrats need to say, "See see you guys later," because I don't I don't think uh, the um, uh, we can get the Republicans to, to to go along. I don't think we can get that part of the the, the country to go along. They never have. They never will. They want, they but want see, to I, have their own country. But I think, Judith, without a, a hardcore right-wing infrastructure funded in large part by right-wing billionaires whose real goal is financial, you know, to, to protect their oil in, industry and empire, uh, I don't think much of this stuff would be happening. I don't think much of this I, stuff I, would I, be going I, on. I, 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 and, I agree with and that. Putin but, is an oilocrat, too. Judith, I'm sorry. I, I, we're I hitting the break. we gotta, we got we to gotta go. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Back with more of your calls and uh, the news of the day in just a moment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us, our old friend, Professor Richard Wolff. He is an economist. He is the co-founder of Democracy at Work. His most recent book, Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, Essays on the Global Economic Meltdown. His website, democracyatwork.info, and of course, his personal website, rdwolf with two fs.com. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure it's personal. It also you know, has all the kind of cool stuff on it. Professor Wolff, welcome back. Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here. Glad to have you with us. I, I found this article this morning on the Huffington Post and, and uh, wanted to bounce it off you. It's, it's titled, uh, uh, Vienna's Affordable Housing Paradise. And, and basically, uh, it talks about how, well, just a quote from it, uh, today, anyone earning up to $53,000 a year after taxes is eligible to apply for a subsidized apartment in Vienna. And this is a con country where the annual uh, the median gross annual income is only 31000 So, you know, if you're earning under about twice the, the average income, you qualify for discounted housing. Um, the, the average income in the United States is in the 40s, as I recall. So this would be any, anyone earning under $80,000 would get subsidized housing in the United States. 62% of Vienna's citizens currently live in what they call social housing, compared to 1% of America's population. What does this mean, and what does it mean about how societies can be organized to create middle classes, how, how it may be that a middle class doesn't just naturally emerge? It's, in fact, in a totally laissez-faire uh, state, you would have very little middle class, you, you know, uh, that, that it has to be crafted essentially by government, sir. Well, you know, it's interesting. I have been to Vienna. I have visited friends and associates who live in the social housing uh, units that they have all over the city. Uh, you wouldn't know that you were in public housing. That is, if you come from the United States, your image of public housing is somewhere between horrible and disastrous in most cases. There are a few exceptions, but most, mostly it's very poor people, and these things are not very well maintained. So when you arrive at the social housing in Vienna, you, you don't imagine, unless someone explains it to you, that these wonderfully landscaped, pick-and-span, clean, comfortable, roomy apartments are social housing. So let's inquire. Back in the 1920s, when socialists were the government in Austria, they committed to building mass quality public housing. 
The logic in their minds, which Americans, I think, can understand, is that housing is as important in its way as education is. So if you're going to create a public school system, rather than letting everybody get to school if they can afford it, if you're going to have a public education system to help build your people and the middle class, etc., then you should do the same for housing. And they never look back. That's why 60%, as you pointed out, or over 60% live in it. By the way, the average percentage paid for rent by these people is around 25 26% of their income, which is where economists mostly think a decent uh, portion of your uh, income should go for rent, but not beyond that. And by comparison, across the United States, the percentage is much, much higher. So, yes, I think it illustrates beautifully that if you want a society of a middle class, of people who get along with each other, who can live and recreate and have some time off and lead the kind of lives that not only they prefer, but it's better for all of those who come in contact with them, then you have to do the kinds of things that Vienna has done. And it has, boy, as it stood the, taste, the, the test of time. It's now a hundred-year-old experiment. And whether right-wing or left-wing governments have come and gone in Austria, none of them has dared touch this system because it is overwhelmingly supported by the Viennese people. Yeah, it's, that's uh, pretty remarkable stuff. And yet here in the United States, we have billionaire oligarchs uh, who call themselves libertarians, who, who believe that this is socialism or worse communism, that it is antithetical to the values of the United States, or at least the values of the billionaire class. They are supported by their fellow billionaire oligarch, Rupert Murdoch, who programs a television network to, you know, with multi-million dollar stars like Sean Hannity, worth tens of millions of dollars, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars, and, and, and pitch to the average schlub, the average guy in America, the average guy and gal in America, that... Hey, you know, the, the interests of the billionaires are really your interests. You want to see taxes go down on rich people. You want to see an end to public housing. You want to see an end to food stamps. You want to see an end to, to programs that, you know, like Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid that, that hold the middle class together. You want to see an end to public education. Voucherize and privatize everything. And people are buying this, Professor Wolf. Yes, it, it, and, and that's why a trip, if, if you could arrange it, Tom, take Americans randomly chosen to Vienna for a week. I guarantee you they have never seen anything like... Well, well this, is, this is what Michael Moore did with his movie Where to Invade Next. I, I, that's did. right. Literally, you could maybe do it in that way with the, the wonders of the Internet and all the rest, uh, just to give people a sense. I noticed that in this country, I've heard it many times, and most recently from the housing secretary, uh, Carson, that there's a deliberate effort to keep public housing looking the way it usually does and, and, and deteriorated the way it usually is in order not, in their lovely language, to let people become dependent on help from the government in the form of quality housing. The Viennese experiment, now 100 years old, testifies to the extraordinary quality of life. There's, a, there's an award given every year in Europe for the most livable city that includes London, Paris, Berlin, you name it. Vienna wins it hands down, I think, nine out of the last ten years. Because, of course, if you have a mass of people who live in a beautiful home and therefore have enough money because of the low rents to maintain the coffee shops and all the other amenities that make living in a place beautiful, you have a completely different quality of life than the kind of gentrification extremes such as those we have here in New York City, where, where a 10-minute subway ride can take you to the most richest neighborhood in the world, and then 10 minutes later into the worst poverty you can see in the Western Hemisphere. It's just a completely different way of understanding what collective life in a community could and should be. And yet the response to that that you will get from, from you know, billionaire uh, Murdoch and his, and his Fox network and, and the multimillionaire uh, broadcasters on that network, or from multi, multimillionaire uh, uh, Rush Limbaugh or these other guys, is... Uh, well, yeah, of course, you can, you can have everybody have decent housing, but that means that you're going to have to raise my taxes. You're going to steal money from me that I earned with the, with the sweat of my brow and the intellect of my mind, and that is rightfully mine. You're talking about the redistribution of wealth. That, sir, is communism. Yeah, I know. I mean, and I can understand their hysteria. And, and I would put it this way. They have to whip up 
whatever crazy notion they can to tap into whatever they can reach in people not to do or to make an experiment of doing what the Viennese did. And the reason they have to go to these strange lengths with these crazy arguments is that they know what Vienna proves. Once the people understood what you can have in the way of a modern society, nobody would ever get them to go back to what we have in this country now. Well, and this is true of the, uh, you know, out of the 34 richest countries in the world, the 34 OECD nations, 33 of them, including, you know, uh, Canada on the high end of wealth and, and Costa Rica at the very bottom, have national health care systems. The only one that doesn't is the United States. And, you know, Canada, Tommy Douglas is, is, is revered in Canada the way we think of George Washington. Uh, he was the, you know, the politician who started that program in Canada in, uh, uh, what was it, Winnipeg, wherever it was, uh, you know, somewhere out west there back in the 60s and, and or maybe the 50s. And it's like this, you know, they're not going to go back. It's like, uh, well, I would say, I would say Americans, you know, they don't want to go back on Social Security and Medicare. No, because once you get it and you understand the difference it can make in the case of Social Security, that old people have a sense they will not be a burden on their children or at least less of one than they might otherwise have been. And young people understand what a better relationship you can have with your elderly relatives if you're not crowding in on an insufficient economic basis. If you could just extend that awareness to make it clear, imagine a health service where an operation wouldn't be the great catastrophe, or a housing that gave you a nice, comfortable place that would allow you to focus on the other parts of your life rather than desperately worrying about where you'll sleep. It's a different, it's not just a different house, it's a whole different way of life in which you understand we're going to help each other be an effective community rather than accumulate as much as we can and let the chips fall where they may, even though it looks... But isn't the price, the, but the price paid for that, uh, Professor Wolf, is that if somebody in Austria has earned $1 billion and wants to turn it into $5 billion, they're going to find it very difficult. Uh, and they may be able to turn it into $1.3 billion or $1.6 billion, but, you know, doubling, tripling the way that, you know, here in the United States, I mean, we saw the Koch brothers just in the last decade or so go from being worth $10 billion to being worth, what, $80, $90 billion, um, uh, among others. I mean, and, uh, th that somehow Americans have it in our heads that billionaires being able to get mind-bogglingly rich, even as the middle class sinks into the mud, is a good thing. Yeah, they think it until the mud becomes unbearable. Right. You know, um, Americans are going to have to face that, as Mr. Jeffrey Bezos has his $150 billion, which I saw yesterday's headline, wow. uh, of personal wealth and, and vast numbers of Americans can't afford to send their kids to get a college education, you're going to see, it'll take time, but you're going to see a recognition that allowing a handful of people, and that's what we're talking about, to become a billionaires, while the vast majority of people are struggling in ways we don't need to have them struggle because we have the resources to take care of everybody. In the end, the democratic impulse of what's good for the majority is more important than what's good for the minority will work its way forward. From your lips to God's ears, sir. Uh, Professor Richard Wolf, his most recent book, uh, is Capitalism's Crisis Deepens, and uh, his website, Democracy at Work. Uh, you can tweet him at Prof Wolf with two Fs. Dr. Wolf, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Tom. Talk to you again soon. Indeed. Good talking with you. We'll be back. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high tech. In fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable. It is high tech. And yes, I'll say it. It is sexy. This chair is extraordinary and it will dramatically, consequentially improve your concentration and productivity because it's going to help your posture. And, you know, if you're not in pain and your and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is going to work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. 
A lot of people, you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is uh, Jeff Charlotte. He's the author of uh, numerous books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, and C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy. Uh, he's also an associate professor of English at Dartmouth College. His website, jeffcharlotte.blogspot.com. You can tweet him at Jeff Charlotte, S-H-A-R-L-E-T. And Jeff, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tom. Good to be with you. It's been a while since we've talked. You're also contributing editor Harper's and Rolling Stone, I should add, the author of six books. Um, Jeff, the, uh, this, this piece in, in, I believe it was the New York Times, What Was Maria Bettina Doing at the National Prayer Breakfast, uh, quoted you uh, in yesterday's paper. And it was, uh, it, you know, it raised a whole bunch of questions for me and a whole bunch of flags that I wanted to get your thoughts on. If you could recap for people who, you know, may not, have been with a program so long that they remember our previous conversations or may not be familiar with your work. Uh, who is the family or what is the family? Where did it come from? What is its purpose? And then I'd like to get into why are, why is this particular Russian um, agent of influence, shall we say, uh, she hasn't been charged with espionage, uh, trying to infiltrate it or, or, or play in that sandbox, Jeff? Uh, the family is the oldest and, 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 arguably the most influential Christian conservative organization in Washington, goes all the way back to 1935 when it was founded as an explicitly anti-democratic and, and uh, especially anti-labor coalition. It was an anti-New Deal. That was what they understood their mission to be for the first 30 years or so. And, and more recent times, they're dedicated toward building a sort of an international network of elites. They believe um, that they serve God not by serving the poor, but by serving those whom they call the up-and-out uh, elites in power who are in a position to bring about this sort of kingdom of God they want. And they're, they're only public event. They're very secretive. Um, they're kind of dedicated to, very explicitly. The longtime leader says the more invisible you can make your organization, the more influence it'll have. Um, but they do one public event, and that's the National Prayer Breakfast held every year in Washington on the first Thursday in February, which the, the U.S. president always attends, as well as other heads of state and congressmen and Supreme Court justices. And it seems like a pretty blandly ecumenical event, but what they consider it uh, as is a recruiting device with which they draw those with whom they want to have ongoing relationships into deeper conversation, which is exactly how Maria Butina used it. She didn't infiltrate the prayer breakfast. She used the prayer breakfast the way it was meant to be used. Wow. So, uh, you know, tie this to, to, the, uh, to the house on C Street and, the, the, and, and tell people about that. And, 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 and is the principal agenda of the family still, to the, is still the destruction of the New Deal, ending Social Security, ending Medicare, ending you know, uh, minimum wage, ending labor protections, ending the right to unionize? Yeah, that, but that, that, that second part is a really great question because, of course, the New Deal is long gone in, in, in so many ways. But, yes, I think uh, it's fair to say um, that their vision of the kingdom of God is one of a kind of laissez-faire economics. A libertarian um, kingdom. That, Sort of libertarian, except um, libertarian for the rich and not for the poor. Um, they believe if you're rich, you're rich because God made you rich. God chose you to be rich. Oh, so this is uh, Calvinistic. It's, it's very Calvinistic, and that plays right into uh, the house on C Street. They maintain a number of properties, uh, a big mansion called the Cedars in Arlington, Virginia, where they host political dignitaries. Um, they have a similar real estate in Moscow, in fact, where they also host a national prayer breakfast. Um, and on C Street... Uh, a house where they provide uh, sort of subsidized housing for a group of congressmen who are in close covenant with them. And um, listeners may remember some years ago, back in 2009, a number of uh, political figures, Mark Sanford, John Ensign, uh, a congressman, all got caught up in sex scandals. And it was all through the C Street house. 
the family went to bat for them, helping to cover up the scandals, because it believed these men were chosen by God. That's how they work, um, and you can see how appealing that is uh, to someone who wants to do sort of backdoor work in American power. Um, here's an organization that specializes in working behind the scenes. Remarkable. So, uh, what beyond beyond subsidizing housing for Republican congressmen, which seems you know is like kind of the visible thing, and putting on this you know once a year, uh, you know let's all talk about how how uh, you know nobly religious we are uh, per breakfast thing. Um, are, is the family involved in specific policy issues? No. That's one of the things that distinguishes them. As an organization, and in fact in their documents they say, we as a group don't take action. Rather, action arises out of the group that we organize. They organize the uh, men and few women with whom they work into what they call prayer cells. And you'll have a sort of a, uh, a weekly or bi-weekly meeting. It's sort of a Bible study, but it's also a way uh, for you to collaborate. So um, you might collaborate on a business deal, and that's happened a lot at the National Prayer Breakfast. Um, all kinds of lobbying gets done there. Um, you might uh, uh, work, as uh, Vice President Mike Pence did, uh, to help uh, move some legislation uh, beneficial to American missionaries in Sri Lanka and sort of trading access to American arms hmm. for that legislation. Or you might, like Maria Butina, uh, uh, seek to improve relations between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, uh, not just through her attendance at the National Prayer Breakfast, but when we look at the affidavit, and she's quite clear about the ongoing relationship. And a relationship, that I should say, stretches backwards and is on both continents. It's not just that she came to the National Prayer Breakfast. It's that lead organizers of the family went to her in Moscow, meeting with her and her boss, her handler, Alexander Torshin, because they, frankly saw this as a good way of uh, making deals. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I would think that most people, regardless of their party affiliation, would, ag would agree with Donald Trump when he says that our having a, uh, a non-hostile relationship with, with Russia would be a good thing. Uh, but then, you know, the devil's always in the details with these kinds of things. How is, you know, you, you, I did not realize, or maybe I forgot, that the family has a branch in Moscow. How did that come about? And and you know, are they are they trying to influence Russian foreign policy? I mean, uh, you know, is, is uh, what? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, in 1992, Doug Burley, who is now the leader of uh, the family, he's been the leader for just a year since the long time uh, previous leader died after 40 years of sort of uh, uh, running the thing. Uh, Doug Burley is sort of an old Russia hand. He's a longtime evangelical leader. 1992, he founded uh, the Moscow Prayer Breakfast, um, which is where, um, which is uh, allegedly where Maria Butina started making contact with actually NRA uh, mm. uh, officials. Um, and he also founded a numerous other small uh, organizations, prayer cells. One of which he brags is about 25 years ago he founded a, a group for young men, young promising men, and he said these guys are now some of Russia's leading business leaders. That's how they seek to do that influence, is to build these relationships from the ground up. And, you know, to return to a point, Tom, you said, you know, we'd all agree that a non-hostile relationship uh, is better. Uh, sure, but I guess um, I think the really deeply troubling thing about how the family works, and this is how they always work, is um, they seek those relationships not through any democratic means, um, but as they put it in their own language, beyond the din of the vox populi. This is a pretentious little bit of Latin. Vox Populi is Latin for voice of the people. Right. But they say beyond the voice of the people. Um, wow. That's where they think decisions should be made. Um, uh, and they, they really revere an idea of a strong man. Their understanding of Jesus is deeply unorthodox, even for the Christian, right? They compare Jesus to say, you want to understand Jesus? Look at other strong leaders in history. Hitler, Lenin, Mao. That's them speaking. I'm not saying they're secret Nazis. or certainly not secret communists. Well, they admire strength, and that gives us a clue into their understanding of how you make peace between countries like United States and Russia. It's not through democratic open conversation. Uh, it's through serving the sort of the authoritarian impulses of men like Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. Does the family take uh, uh, public positions on things? You said that they don't, they don't do policy, they just bring people together. But, I mean, even something as bland, uh, presumably, 
as, yes, it would be a great idea if the two you know, largest nuclear powers of the world had a good relationship. Do they even go that far? No, they take no public positions at all. And in fact, until 2010, in response to my reporting, they denied that they existed. Um, really? Despite the existence of 600 boxes of documents at the Billy Graham Center uh, archives. Um, you know, Billy Graham Center, this is no, this is no lefty center of lefty right. conspiracy mongering. Um, you know, the documents were all there. Uh, the tax documents were all there. And if you ask them, they would say they didn't exist. In 2010, uh, uh, in response to my reporting on another one of the international involvements in the, the country of Uganda, where they had helped create something called the Kill the Gays Bill. Yeah, you and I talked about that like, at the time. Yeah, we talked about that time. They finally came forward and they said, yes, um, uh, uh, on national TV, they said, we've been very secretive. Uh, Charlotte's right about that. We've been maybe too secretive. And we're going to start a website. We're going to go public. They started a website. I don't think it's been updated since then. It doesn't tell you anything. And that is the last of their public visibility. Even now, we have Doug Burley, um, who you know is either one of the unnamed organizers in the affidavit, or certainly as the lead organizer of the National Prayer Breakfast, knows more about it. Um, it would seem like the right time for him to be speaking publicly uh, about what he knows. You're talking about Maria Patina and the Russians. Yeah, I'm sorry, the, the Maria Patina. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Exactly, that affidavit. Um, we've got, they know something. Uh, come forward. Uh, show your commitment to transparent dialogue. If you believe in peace between these two nations, help it happen um, by putting it out in the open instead of this behind-the-scenes cloak-and-dagger kind of work. Yeah, it's remarkable stuff. Jeff Charlotte, he's a journalist, contributing editor to uh, Harper's and Rolling Stone. The author of six books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, and C Street, The Fundamentalist Threat to American Democracy. He's also associate professor of English at Dartmouth College. JeffCharlotte.blogspot.com is his website. You can tweet him at Jeff Charlotte, S-H-A-R-L-E-T. Jeff, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Tom. Always good talking to you. Great talking with you, too. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls right after this. And welcome back. John in St. Louis, Missouri. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Thanks for watching Free Speech. Oh, yeah, thanks, Tom, for your program. It's really great. Um, my question is, well, I'm going to give a little history, back, a little backstory to it. Um, in March of 2015... 47 U.S. United States Republican senators violated Logan Act, which was an act of treason. Yet none of them were ever held or a trial. Or well, what was the specific violation? First of all, re refresh my memory as to what the Logan Act is. That's the Logan Act is uh, that no one can negotiate uh, or without. Oh, you can't. You can't do foreign policy, basically. Yeah, this yeah. that's from the 1790s. Um, yes, uh, I'm familiar with that. And so, how did these guys? Oh, you're talking about by trying to blow up the Iran deal? Uh, yeah. When they did that, they all signed that document, that right. paper, and yeah. they violated Logan Act. Yeah, I called them out about that at the time. You're right. I said, "Hey, man, these these guys violated Logan Act. Yep. They all committed treason. They should go to jail." Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that they committed treason, but they did break the law. And yeah, that, that's what I was calling for at the time. Yeah, but none of them went to jail. And so, where are you uh, going with this? Everybody kind of wanted to let it just pass and go by. Okay, fine. But they did commit treason because that was an act of treason. Okay, so fine. We kind of let that go by. Now we have a Republican president who publicly is told a week before he goes to Helsinki, "My God, those those dang Russians! They attacked the United States. You know, here's the document of proof. There's 12 guys there. They did it." You know, we're telling you that, Mr. President. You know that going in there. What does he do? He knows that you have an enemy of the United States, and he stands there publicly and says, oh, no, this is guy's the greatest guy in the world, man. I love this guy, and I don't believe anything that our intelligence community says. That's an act of treason where he puts the needs of this nation over that. And 70% of Republican country. voters, the poll was just released a few hours ago, 70% of Republican voters think that what Trump did was just fine with Mr. Putin, uh, with President Putin there. And um, so, you know, I would say that that's because of the existence of a billionaire's, you know, an oligarch billionaire's network, that's Rupert Murdoch and Fox so-called news, um, basically putting that message out. And most Republican voters, I think, are now getting almost all of their news, if not all of their news, from Fox News. And the consequence of that is, is what we're seeing. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you on that, but my question is, it was an act of treason. I mean, outright act. I mean, you had the former head of the CIA under Obama. He even said it. You even had John McCain. Say, my God, you know, I've, I've seen some stuff that's pretty treasonous. Boy, this is real. Even he knew it was an act of treason. Yeah. So, so what you have is you have a president who's committed treason. You had several Republicans already do it in the past. So when has treason become acceptable in the United States? I mean, if that's what we're trying to do. I think it became acceptable when America elected a black president. I think that the that the irrational racism that that President Obama's election brought out in the Republican Party or that the Republican Party chose to exploit in order to achieve political power, um, including Donald Trump's birtherism. I think that was the point at which questioning even the President of the United States' uh, uh, you know, uh, legitimacy, uh, that, I think that's where it began, John. Hey, Tom Hartman here. Here's what you might have missed on our program today. Michael Avenatti, the, the, the lawyer who is uh, Stormy Daniels' lawyer, he is now also defending asylum seekers. He says, here's a letter from my client Lillian who is in custody, to her seven-year-old daughter, Brittany. Lillian has no idea where they took Brittany, and ICE will not tell her. Lillian is about to be deported without her daughter, who she fears she will never see again. And here's the letter from Lillian to her daughter, Brittany. My princess, from where I am, I pray to God for you, and I cannot stop thinking... I'm going to start crying if I keep reading this. And I cannot stop thinking about those days when you used to tell me, Mommy, I love you, and I'm scared of getting hurt by other people. Mommy, I always want to be with you forever. And I'm praying really hard for the day... I will have you again in my arms so I can keep loving you and take care of you. I love you, my little one. That fear that you feel will be over soon. This is just, uh, this is just criminal. For more information about our podcast, go to TomHartman.com slash podcast. Welcome back. Uh, Derek in Roanoke, Virginia. Hey, Derek, what's on your mind? Um, Tom. Derek? Tom. Derek? Tom. Hello? <laughs> yeah. What's on your mind, Derek? I'm here. Um, I'd like to ask you something. Um, have you ever asked a religious right person, um, these Christians, what does that heaven look like? You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, but I don't, I don't know why you would want me to do that. I mean, because I don't talk to them. I don't know if you talk to people like that, but yeah. when they call up and they hate on everybody and Mexicans, I always, you know, I ask people, you know, we talk to people. I say, what do, does that heaven look like? Oh, I, I think I understand where you're going with this, Derek. Are you <laughs> suggesting that the guy who was anti-Mexican a little bit ago was, was that because he's a racist and that when he, if he dies and goes to heaven, he's going to discover that there's as many people of color up there as there are people who look like him? Is that your point? Right. Right. Okay. Right. I got it. That's I got what it. I always wonder about them people because is the heaven going to be all white? Yeah, I think in their minds is, it is probably it? is. It's probably a segregated place. I really do. Derek, I want to get a couple more calls in here before the end of the show. We're just we're we're coming up on it. And uh, Franklin in Savannah, Georgia. Hey, Franklin, what's up? Hi, Tom. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Uh, I have some comments about up, upcoming events, and I have some questions about you can inform me about. The uh, appointment of of Kavanaugh uh, mm-hmm. to the Supreme Court, and I understand he will have a hearing uh, for Congress in about two months or something like that. Yeah. But it's in the future, uh, and and I want you to well, I forget. I want you to to get the word out and stress to the Democrats in Congress about questioning him about one of his opinions. Maybe you can enlighten me on it. Maybe I heard it wrong. Judge Kavanaugh, I think, even publicly made an opinion that uh, a sitting president shouldn't be uh, investigated or shouldn't be bothered. Uh, he could have uh, written an opinion. Yeah, I think he wrote over something like 300 opinions. Mm-hmm. So this one opinion that, that uh, I'm thinking about has to do with the future or going forward. Uh, the one that I think he expressed, uh, and enlighten me on it, that uh, a sitting president should not be bothered it should not be investigated. He doesn't have time. Right. He Kavanaugh not only has said that, but uh, he has also uh, said in public forums that he would have uh, reversed the previous Supreme Court decision, Olson versus somebody or other, that uh, affirmed the right of an independent counsel uh, investigation. Yeah. Okay. 
So, and, and, and I've and I've been saying, and this is why you know, two weeks before Kavanaugh was selected, or a week before he was selected, anyway, on the air right here on this program, I was saying Donald Trump is going to pick Brett Kavanaugh because of all the candidates, he's the only one who said that the president can't be investigated, and he's going to put right. him on the Supreme Court because he knows that if he refuses a subpoena from Congress or if he refuses a subpoena from the Justice Department, then it's going to go to the Supreme Court. Right, because he would be a. Uh, uh... Yeah, exactly. And the Supreme Court, with the nine, if he's appointed with a nine-four decision, clearly it will probably come down and agree with uh, uh, Kevin or uh, his opinion that a president. Yeah, I think the odds are fairly high because because the other the other Republican appointees are all acting in a totally partisan way on the Supreme Court. Franklin, thank you for the call. Thanks for uh, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What a day, huh? And I'm sure there's more to come tomorrow. Don't forget, between now and tomorrow, you know there's lots of opportunities to share with your friends about the radio station you're listening to this program on, the TV station you're watching it on, or the internet site, or you know whatever it may be, YouTube, Facebook, whatever, to spread the word about this show and other good progressive media out there, to support our stations and our sponsors, and to get you, yourself and your friends involved. This is no time to sit on the sidelines. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.